This episode originally aired on October 15th, 2017. The hosts were Emily Long, Kirsten Lopez, and Sarah Head. The guests were Cheryl Fogelhatch, Deidre Black, and Nicole Bodenstein. Welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. On this episode, we will be talking about the changing roles of museums in society. I'm Emily Long, and joining me for this discussion are Sarah Head, Kirsten Lopez, Cheryl Fogelhatch, Deidre Black, and our newest guest, Nicole Bonstein. Thank you all for joining me this evening. Hello. Yay. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, before we jump into our topic, Nicole, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, I'm Nicole Bodenstein. I'm a graduate student at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Um, I'm studying archaeology, well, mid- Midwestern archaeology, specifically 3D scanning and uh, textile impressions on pottery. Oh, wow. And I'm also getting a, a museum studies certificate which is why I was interested in this podcast. That's well, this wonderful. episode. <laughs> well, we hope you join us for other ones, but I'm glad you're you're joining with us today. And that sounds like a really fascinating topic, trying to see if you can see those imprints on there. Have you been finding a lot of different kinds of imprints on pottery? I've been finding a lot of things that I need for my literature review. Yay! <laughs> hey, it's a good start. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> Gotta start Something somewhere. at a time. <laughs> Hey, that's a good start. And I'm sure you'll find many great examples in museums and then segueing into museums themselves. As we can have seen over time, if looking at literature reviews and um, articles and new museums popping up all over the place, we can see that they have changed dramatically over time in their focus and intent, their subject matter. They've really evolved and their importance in society really seems to have evolved over time as well. And so it's interesting to see the transition of how museums have changed over time. Would anybody like to give kind of a brief history of museums, how they came about? Well, from what I was told... Or from what I remember, from what I was told, museums started as uh, cabinets of curiosity Mm -hmm. or uh, places that you could go to experience the world without, like, leaving your town. I mean, this is back in the, you know. They're they're the antiquarians. Oh, yes. The antiquarian period. (laughs) Yes. Talking about the antiquarians. Oh, yes. uh, The Victorian eras. Yeah. No, uh, this was uh, the Renaissance. Eighteenth, Yeah, that's when you start getting like sociology. And... Well, the very first one was ancient. I was gonna say my uh, my ancient princess archaeologist. Yeah, go deeper. <laughs> okay, um, so I told uh, the st- the story of our first known museum, which was found in an excavation. <laughs> which is always Ironically. awesome. So it's a uh, Enigadi Nana is uh, the princess's name, and she was in uh, the Neo Babylonian Empire. So about five thirty BC. Um, that's close to like the ziggurat of Ur, close to in Iraq. Hmm. Um, now, and she and she really maintained. Old. She maintained the museum there, but what kind of artifacts and stuff were inside the museum? 
um, there, there were things that her father was an ancient antiquarian. I think this is something sort of that during the Enlightenment was rediscovered. Mm-hmm. Sort of like when when Northern Europeans discover things, it's new. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Like like well, zero. Of course, it's obviously it's obviously if it was important, we would have known about it already. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so they looked for you know old stuff, cool old stuff, just uh, to, to say, oh look, see this thing was here for this long. We you know we belong here. This is our heritage, and so they had. Um, Boundary markers, statues, uh, cones, parts of buildings that now were this is in the ancient museum. In the ancient museum, correct? Yeah. Wow. So you know these were things that were centuries old. Then in 530 BCE, mm-hmm. um, and she arranged them nicely, and had a clay drum that had the labels, um, in three languages of what the object was where they found it and how old they thought it was. That's amazing. And this is back in the Babylonian time. So yeah, this all sounds so meta. An archeologist (laughs) found a museum. (laughs) (laughs) And so so, uh, archeologist Leonard Woolley in the modern era was excavating the temple. And I was like, why are these really old things here? And why do they have labels? (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's really cool cuz I mean there's definitely a trend over time with that especially like with what you were saying with the curio cabinets and I'm sure there are a lot of little labels uh-huh. with those. I mean like look at this awesome random collection of things I have and if I remember correctly like the um the earliest collection with like the Smithsonian Institution they would uh had the main building and it was essentially just like rooms of stuff just here's some unique random things and it seems to have kind of come out of that just curiosity for the unknown the exotic things you would see at the world fair um just essentially random things i i almost wonder if if this uh if the process has repeated itself multiple times just like in other cultural practices like how many times have we had curio cabinets that turned into a discipline like, <laughs> and, and in different countries and everything else. We've, we've known about people curating projectile points thousands of years and they'll use a archaic point on a later site or, or something and it, it throws the archaeologists off until you realize that it's one, one in many and it's totally different from everything else they're using, but they pick it up mm-hmm. off the landscape and keep it. Mm-hmm. And, and the larger thing here is that, um, and Deidre brought this up, the whole concept of creating our story, like mm-hmm. the the curio cabinets, and especially of the early Victorian, the late whatever early Victorian eras, those were a way of creating a story and controlling the past. You know, you you brought objects home, you you kept them, you displayed them. It showed not only your intellect and your ability to travel and how worldly you were but at the same time it also allowed you to create a narrative because the classifications that we enjoy today and the history that we enjoy today 
um, none of that had quite been created yet. And I, I would be really interested is, I mean, if, if there was anything written about what, uh, the, the princess from earth thought of all of the objects that she had in her museum and how they were classified and what the stories were of those. Cause it's, it's actually been a repeated event in history that newer cultures will collect older cultures items in order to display them in order to, as Deidre said, claim that as their heritage and thereby give themselves stronger rights to whatever the area that they're trying to claim is. So, yeah, it's a repeating process. And now today we've got our Smithsonian and most uh, most countries have their own uh, national museums and that kind of stuff. And I feel like it is kind of a repeating thing. I mean, look at the, the Elgin Marbles. Um, I'm sure there's several items within the Smithsonian that are of questionable uh, provenience, um, but it's the same kind of thing. Oh, just like a, the Met in New York. Yeah. Right, right. And it extends to art museums and stuff, too. It's not just like natural history and, and American history. It's all anytime you're taking an object specifically to display it, to be like, look how awesome I am. You're also trying to absorb and create a narrative around that object. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah the, what seems to be the bigger pattern, um, as you mentioned, with the storytelling is is the controlling of the narrative. Mm-hmm. So that's where you get different forms of what we might refer to as museums in different cultures. The curation um, point that Cheryl brought up, uh, I know in... Um, Southeast Asia, I can't remember exactly where this was, but there was um, a society that had curated their um, historic or their ancient grains. They continued to um, to cultivate in small gardens that were sort of their um, ancestors, uh, had to do with their ancestors, and this is what came before. It wasn't their main crop anymore, but like before rice, it's somewhere in this in um, the, the islands. And I can't unfortunately remember where this was, but it just comes to mind as an example of, of controlling the narrative, uh, identifying with the past in some way. Um, but the, you know, the, the narrative piece is kind of the big part that I think of when I, I think of the early museums for Western society, because that's really when some of this bloomed and not just in the history portion um, with the princess that Deidre was talking about, but also the exotic um, that was brought up um, that was very popular in the 18th century, but the I think some of that really started with um, the age of exploration and a lot of uh, like the late 15th, early 16th century with the early explorers from Europe going to see and discover, quote unquote, the rest of the world. You know, they'd bring pieces of those cultures back and those were kept as sort of treasures or prizes um, that were a curiosity, um, but definitely continued to uh, define the the narrative of what those other cultures were as uh, these empires spread. That sounded like a, that example in Southeast Asia sounds like today's botanical gardens. Yeah. Not that far off. And to jump in from there too, I think uh, that's where then we move from the exotic as well to 
seeing more of not just trying to bring things into the national identity, but things that are literally already part of that identity that needs to be preserved and um, upheld as an ideal kind of the house museum idea with like Mount Vernon um, with George Washington's home or any of the founders homes where you have the daughters of the American Revolution and um, people that want to preserve these houses as a museum as like upholding a tradition or upholding a particular period of time because it enshrines a particular aspect of um, the national identity. So I think you get both kind of the the want to understand the exotic or at least display the exotic to also wanting to have something to enshrine the national identity. You know, it's like this was our founding father. Ooh. Pretend he didn't have slaves, but the, ooh. <laughs> and weren't they just so great compared to everybody else? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We so, have. But, well, hang on there. But the house museums—they're not necessarily—they're uh, not necessarily there for bragging rights. We have a house <laughs> museum. No, seriously, it's true. It's true. It's down the road from us. It's the Ben Loman site. Um, they have chosen to represent the house as it was when it was used as a field museum during the civil or a field hospital uh during the civil war it's also one of only i think two or three plantation sites in virginia that still has slave structures on it hmm. um so they have chosen to maintain those slave structures uh they bring in interpreters who once a year come in and act out the part of a house slave um, they maintain a garden there that represents the kind of foods that the slaves would have grown. Mm-hmm. So in essence, it is the house part of the house museum. There is the slave cavern mm-hmm. uh, cabin. So and, it's, it's still a house museum, but it is a house museum interpreting slave life, not mm-hmm. the, the lives of the people that lived in the plantation house, which is still there, but its focus is to demonstrate what it would have been like to be in, in a field hospital during the Civil War, which is absolutely disgusting, but mm-hmm. it's fantastic if you ever get to walk through it. <laughs> exactly. And it's great that these have changed. So many of these house museums have changed so dramatically over time, and we'll definitely get into changes. It's just a, a shame how much uh, in the past is very much like, this is the house. Hooray. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, they're definitely so great that lived in it. Exactly. Yeah, it and that's great to hear that like that you're saying museum did that. So. Yeah, Sarah, the um the what you're describing is one of those um uh, changing roles, like what they yes. had been used like Emily was saying for a long time or the sort of um idolization, I guess. Is it I don't know if that's the best word. Um, idolization. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. that's totally what it is. And then it's now being used to kind of transform that role into sort of a tool for education of some of the different sides of these things that we see sort of in a broader sense. Um, exactly. But I don't want to, I have, I have a few other examples that. Oh, um, yeah. But we'll be definitely getting into that topic more on how things have changed um, more recently. And so just staying on the topic of just generally how museums were in the past. Uh, Nicole or Cheryl, did you have anything you would like to add? Well, it's interesting because I was recently at a small conference session last week 
and talking about museum collections, and there was a real divide between those who wanted objects to be put out and those who wanted um, educators, mostly wanted to do this, to have experiential learning and have kids project, you know, look at objects and, and construct scenarios and, and practice-based. And there were debates about you go to a museum to see objects, and if you if you're making you know, having them do other activities, you're losing that. And the educators coming back with, yeah, but they don't retain anything if you're having them look at objects. So it was interesting to be a fly on the wall during that conversation. I bet. And it seems like a more old school approach to just have objects. Only look at the objects and that's right. it. And the balance is probably somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, they were talking past each other. Research collections are different than educational collections. Hmm. Um, and I was never clear which side the collections object-based people were on. because this was, this was mostly historians, and so a lot of house museum people. And I'm an outsider hmm. to that world, so I really didn't know who was who and what was what. Hmm. Well... That kind of brings us to the end of our first 20 minutes. Uh, we will be coming back to this topic and going into then how things have changed in our next 20 minutes. So we'll be right back. Did you know that we have a blog? Check out the Women in Archaeology website for a variety of blog posts as well as past episodes. Interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, thank you for listening. Welcome back, everyone. In our first segment, we talked about a brief history of the museums, how they came about, uh, what was their role. Now we're going to get into the role of education, how museums have changed over time in terms of their education outreach approach um, and then how that can create tension between the different approaches, whether it should be more object-based or more um, educational, educationally based, uh, what Cheryl was talking about at the end of our last segment. So who would like to jump in? I can get in on this one. Excellent. So... <laughs> Um, some of the, the things that come to mind um, that I've seen is the idea of a museum, um, as we talked about before, in the, it tends to be very much what's in the public mind as far as when you ask the, anyone specifically, you know, or anyone randomly what uh, they think a museum is, they'll usually think of something that's very kind of um, clean, something that you don't really touch anything. It's just stuff you look at, uh, such as an art museum or a history museum or a natural museum. It's very, yes, I like that word, sterile. Um, Or static. And and static, yes. Uh, And there's been a big movement away from that in the museum world, mostly when it uh, comes down to those who've been trained in education. How do you get this the lessons that these things are teaching w- to stick. How do you, how do you get people to learn what you're trying to teach them? Um, Cause eventually, you know, it kind of came to this point of like, well, you know, it's cool to see these things, but what, what do they mean? Um, and then trying to portray that meaning in a, in a productive way. And then from there, 
you know, how do you get things to stick? And so a lot more of museum staff or museums have education staff. Um, And these are people who specialize in being able to get people on board with what things mean, how to get the information to stick, uh, which often involves things like touchables, hands-on workshops type stuff. Um, And that's where where I think uh, the science museum was kind of born from. And I don't know if if that's 100% true, but where you get sort of these larger abstract concepts and how do you get those things to stick with the public that may not have a lot of the background knowledge and displaying how certain things work, principles of physics. um, And those are big things that you see in science museums that are usually geared towards kids. Uh, One example here in Portland is OMSI, which is the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry, has some amazing exhibits uh, that are stationary. They also have a huge traveling exhibit section, which has a lot of the traditional things-based exhibits that come through, um, and some have more interactive elements. So you have things like there's a things-based thing uh, exhibit that tells a story and you go through and collect stamps where you do um, wax rubbings of different parts to put together the story that you take home in a booklet. Um, so this, this interactive piece um, Before we started this, someone compared it to a, uh, what was it? A, I can't remember the word. One of you gals compared it to, maybe it was a scavenger hunt. Uh, well, that's a scavenger hunt, the, the examples I gave, but it, it's like a glorified um, adult theme park or something. I don't remember. <laughs> I if my term was daycare. Daycare, that's what it was. I'm like, who was that? Yes. That was me. Oh, my. <laughs> so that's where you get the things versus the education. Um, but then there's other roles uh, that museums p- play. And does anyone else want to jump in on, on that? Well, uh, I do have a question yeah. for you on this changing. Do you think that some of these changes... Uh, came across as it became less in vogue for moneyed people to uh, support and uh, be patrons for for museums. And so you have to reach out to the masses, become more egalitarian. And when you're at a lower price point, you have to have more people. Do you think any of that is into play here? Um, from what I've read, it actually went the other direction. It may have instigated some drop in funding, but or may have been instigated by drops in funding. But from what I've read, it appears to look like drops in funding have actually instigated the move towards public education and engagement more um, than trying to just service uh, the rich because they still try to get patrons and they a lot of museums still do. Uh, have patrons that will donate, um, especially places like art museums um, and some history museums. But um, some of it is, is the, what I was thinking of too, and this kind of comes into the patron um, money is housing of collections that have been there since the 18th, 19th, early 20th centuries. Um, 
and research collections, which museums usually house, often associated with universities um, or national museums, such as the Smithsonian. And so I'm sure a few of us have worked at uh, some of those types of museums. Does anyone see uh, what kind of interaction between the education and collections departments has? So interaction between the collections and the education department? Kind of, yeah. So like, you know, those are sort of the two from the um, Cheryl's earlier example of of the two sort of debating factions, more or less, is sort of the traditional things um, versus, you know, base versus the education interaction base, which tends to encourage a lot more children. It sounds like. The divide between museums as repositories and stewards of of objects uh, versus their uh, informal education roles and and their their need to demonstrate themselves as useful in uh, and, you know, worthy of of existence um, (laughs) in to in as society changes around them, because. I think before it was that uh, in the cabinets of curiosity, it it was that people would uh, go around on these these uh, you know worldwide tours by boat and collect fantastic things from exotic cultures and um, uh, taxidermy animals and uh, uh, and and now in today when um, the when people are able to just access the internet. Or hop on a plane and go see some some new place rather than having to see it in, in a museum. Um, I, I think museums are uh, uh, doing more, I suppose, demo- democratic things than yeah. uh, and trying to involve the the community around them to uh, to have. Uh, it, remember that narrative that we were speaking about? Uh, they, they want, well, I suppose we want, we as museum professionals would like other people to feel like they have a, a, a voice in that narrative uh, so that it's not just like, we are the museum and this is what we have to say about the subject. Bah. Uh, <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah. because there are so many people in different groups, in a community and in a state and other uh, other, you know, however you want to define a locality. Have you seen a change in terms of museums playing more of a social justice role as well? Uh, sometimes, definitely multi, more, more uh, acknowledging of multivocality, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the cabinets of curiosity kind of privileged. Uh, it, it was. <laughs> I think I reacted so strongly earlier because it was uh, it was a privileged history. It was uh, certain people were were kind of in charge of that history or uh, the old white ri- uh, rich men, you mean? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that, that was yeah. the way they wanted other people to view history is if you it's don't mind me inserting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it, yes, it's a way of of showing history or even art or 
I don't know. Uh, personally, I was working at a science and technology museum over here in Milwaukee called Discovery World, and we Ooh. have all kinds of of interactive exhibits. And it 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 I, I feel like it it like the it's not just going through and looking at objects and reading labels because, as it turns out, no one really likes to read labels. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I find okay. this time and time again. But what people like to do, and especially children, they like to press buttons and, and feel the, and they kind of almost accidentally learn by, by through these uh, hands-on uh, exhibits. And uh, uh, like for instance, we have, well, I, I suppose it's not we anymore, but at Discovery World, they have lake sturgeon that you can touch and it's an endangered species. At, but, oh, cool. Yeah. The, the Children's Museum here has an adult night with wine pairings. Oh, that sounds delightful. Nice. Yeah. So you can you can do the, 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 the light exhibit where you touch all the things and make light and learn about light refraction and speed and all that stuff. It's really cool. And Sarah, I understand you want to get in on this as well? I do. And, and the point that Deidre just made is my pet peeve. Um, <laughs> To this whole no, seriously. Um, I worked at a, a children's science museum uh, for about a, a year when I first moved down here, and um, and just my opinion of museums in general. I love museums. I absolutely love them. I can spend all day in them. I am one of these people that reads labels, um, but I am also an adult. Um, and the way I experience a museum is much different than the way children are expected to experience a museum, and. One of the things that I have a major issue with, uh, especially working in the field of education here in Virginia for the last two years, um, people kidify way too much um, with the expectation that if we make things too intellectual, children can't follow it. And I think that's a huge disservice to children in general. Um, and it I'm sorry, it dumbs down the museum and it, it takes away from the overall experience of the museum for everyone, not just the kids. Um, so this is my this is my soapbox. Um, <laughs> I understand. No, seriously, I understand that the museums have to change and I understand that the way that we're presenting information and the, the artifacts and stuff has to change. It can't just be room after room of artifact porn. I mean, that's not doing anybody any favors. The labels, especially, I mean, there's some of the labels at the Smithsonian that I'm just like, well, that was completely useless, and you move on to the next object. So you're basically just invited to stare at this thing. It might have a title, and then nothing. You know, it gives you no information. You have no idea. You don't, You might get to know what the materials they're made out of are, but you don't know anything else about it. Yeah. And that's the thing. And then Deidre mentions these adult nights. The Children's Museum in Indianapolis used to do it, too. They would close down the museum for a night, and it was you had to pay i mean it was again it was kind of a privileged event you had to pay somewhere around 50 to 75 dollars oh, wow. for a ticket to go but oh the one here is much cheaper yeah but you could go and you could drink wine and eat cheese and and explore the exhibits and the fact that adults are willing to do that and it's they're not fundraisers. well i mean maybe they were for the museum but they weren't a they weren't advertised as fundraisers so it was a adult night. You came, you, you, you ate, you drank, you walked around the museum, and you as an adult got to experience the children's museum without all of the kids there. And the fact that adults would pay for that privilege means there is some attraction 
to the idea of being able to interact with the objects of, in a museum. Even if it's just a replica of the objects that you're showing them, people want to touch them. They want to interact with them. And so I'm all for 3D printing of objects and the sharing of objects like that or the creating of, of replicas that can be pushed, touched. You know, if somebody, you know, vomits on it, no one cares. It's a replica. We can make a new one. You know, as opposed oh, yeah. to the actual statue that's now got human vomit all over it. And, and someone knocked my- the Ming vase down the stairs. Exactly. But... <laughs> At the same time that we need to create more interactive, we need to create spaces that are more interactive for people. We need to also keep in mind that kids are great. Half the time the kids are at museums, they're there because they have to be, which means they've already shut you out anyway. The ones that are learning are going to learn regardless. So there's no need to dumb everything down Yeah, mm-hmm. in hopes that you're making it friendly for kids. When what you should be doing is making it just interactive so that everybody can come and interact with it and have a really great time and tactilely learn about history or art or science or engines or what have you. Yeah. Anyway, so, that's I, my rant. Yeah. Oh. It's a good point. It's a very good point. What Go ahead, the museums I think that is working pretty good at getting there is I had the, uh, the great privilege of going to the Bishop Museum in Hawaii uh, this summer. And the Bishop Museum is 125 years old. It has nice. the clothing of King Kamehameha, who was the, the king that united the islands and mm-hmm. was the king when uh, the first uh, white people found that there were other people there. No way. Uh, and it started off. <laughs> Crazy talk. And the museum started off. It's this very gorgeous, ornate, dark, uh, tropical wood things with these big glass cases and drawers and these old, old curated things. But what they've done, they've gone through, well, first of all, they stabilized the cases because the cases themselves are historic now. And while, yes, you have the stuff, they've arranged it so it tells a story. And so you see the story, and then in between the story, there's things you can touch. There's things you can do. It's like, oh, this is what these feathers look like. You touch these feathers over here or this is a piece of these are some bark cloth that have this repeated motif on it here's some stamps and see if you can do it how long do you think it took to take this to make this big long thing and Mm. then you go and now as you go up the stairs you get now that you had the base you're like oh this is cool stuff you go the next one and it goes this is the story of how uh people got here you go the next story and it goes this is the modern story of Hawaii um, and how we got the stuff that's in this museum. And so you go through it and, you know, if you're someone like me who wants to read every single label and would annoy all my siblings whenever we would go somewhere <laughs> and they're like, God, can not we go through this? I'm like, no, we must do every single thing. <laughs> yeah. And we'll see every diorama. <laughs> but I was able to go through, but also my siblings that were with me as adults were able to go through and they got something out of it too. And we all learned in our own way going through that museum. We learned a really good story of the history of the culture of Hawaii and even a history of Polynesia in general. And they have other stuff there. They have a planetarium and traveling exhibits and plants. But I think that what they're doing is a really good uh, middle 
Brown's uh, method of, so you have the curation, you have the stuff, you have the interaction. And I felt in no way that it was dumbed down. And they even presented the, the, the struggles of the native Hawaiians and how things were taken from them. Uh, they didn't dumb it down. They presented it in simple, understandable terms. Mm-hmm. But they didn't dumb it down. And they presented it yeah. like, this is what these people feel like. And like, you can listen, you can, uh, you know, pick up the headphones and listen to the stories. You can play the drum. Uh, and I thought it was a really, it was a really nice museum. And I think that, you know, they're moving towards the future with this museum, you know, about how to make it a museum of the people, not just for the rich people that collected it mm-hmm. yeah. 125 years ago, who are all dead now. Ooh, very cool. That's a wonderful example, and I'm sure there's there are many, many wonderful examples that are trying to make that push going towards being interactive for both children and adults, and we can get into more of those examples as well as some of the other points we think that need to be changed at museums. How can we push this even further in the next 20 minutes? So we will be right back looking for other archaeology podcasts? There's so many to choose from. Why not try Fantasies and bust myths surrounding ancient finds and people? Or learn about the study of animal bones and archaeanimals? There's also the great Go Dig a Hole and the Ark and Anth podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Women in Archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on iTunes, Spotify, all over the place. Thanks for listening! Welcome back. In the last 20 minutes, we talked a little bit about the changing roles of museums, how they have uh, changed in terms of their education, uh, different kinds of outreach, uh, some of the positives, some of the negatives. A little, we got a little bit into that. Um, for this final section, we're going to talk about what is being done right, and then some of the things we think might need to be done perhaps a little bit better. Maybe we need a little more of something, like we're in the right direction, but we could take it a step further. And one of those things is community involvement. And you can, it seems like you can never have enough community involvement, especially those with a direct stake in the collections and perhaps those whose ancestors are being represented in the collections. And so I know you guys were interested in talking about that. So whoever would like, jump on in. I have an example of this one where the, the, the museum and associated archaeological site went from uh, a you know, Anglo colonizer uh, interpretation to a full community involvement uh, involving the the peoples whose culture and ancestors were involved in the site. And this one is the Caddo Mound site here in Texas. It was formerly known as the George C. Davis site. It is is a public archaeological site. Um, There's mounds, there's a lot of house remains, and there's been quite a lot of work done here. And what started off as, oh, you go look at the mounds, you go in the museum, you see all the stuff that was dug out of the mounds. Before the 80s, perhaps you see some people that were dug out of the mounds. I (laughs) haven't gotten the full history on that. Um, But over the years, over the past several decades, uh, the Caddo people have become more and more involved. Uh, Some of them sought it out, and also the state, uh, the people that were running the site, 
sought them out to go, you know what, we could do a better job of this. And so now if you go there, uh, yes, you go around and you see the mounds, but uh, the Caddo will also come and do cultural events. They have become uh, very, very involved in the interpretation of the site uh, and making the site a living thing again. You know, it's not just the static thing you see over in the corner. Okay, these people were here. Now they're dead, but these are still a living people, a living culture. And so they go, oh, this is, you know, this is what this means. This is how we make our pots now. This is how we make our baskets. This is our dances. These are our elders telling stories. And it's very interactive, which we've been talking about uh, much of this episode, how that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And it really brings the, the site. It's not now just owned by the people who eventually came here. It's owned by the people who are the direct descendants of, you know, the people that made this site, it belongs, and it also, it belongs more to the surrounding community as well, because it's in a fairly rural area, and, you know, there's a lot more involvement of everyone, a lot more pride in the site, and that's one of our examples how a site went, how a museum went from, you know, stuff on the wall to being strongly involved in the community. Mm Awesome. Awesome. That's I like that example a lot, um, which is why I would put poked you at presenting that. <laughs> um, there's I, I work with museum collections, and I know a couple of us in here do as well, uh, for research purposes, and that is a topic that um, has a lot of history, as we mentioned, just the the um, curiosity cabinets and people looking at and analyzing. Um, objects. So the idea that um, descendant communities have a say, at least, if not control over um, how, what gets put on display, how it's put on display, who gets to see it, if it's seen by the public or by researchers, um, I know generally speaking due to NAGPRA, and that's a whole other topic that we're not really getting into here, but um, when there's a request or if a museum has collections that are sensitive, culturally sensitive, um, and a researcher requests to be able to put an image, say, into a presentation, the tribes are generally contacted and be like, hey, is this okay? Can so-and-so put this for this purpose? And they can say yes or no. Um, The level of involvement I know varies widely from what Deidre just discussed to um, the multivocality. So you have the, the little plaques or panels next to artifacts having, say, the native story behind it, um, it alongside uh, the scientific view. Uh, there's a whole um, examples of what, uh, Sarah, you talked about earlier, the, the house museum mm-hmm. stuff that's much more interactive in that you're not just looking at things and interacting with things, but you're physically interacting with the space. Right. And I think that is a really, really cool advance um, that I would like to see more of with regard to not just strictly museums, but just historic places. Mm-hmm. And I know some historic 
districts have programs where you they do like a tour of homes that are listed and you can open your home for a day if your house is listed um, to get the story of the house told, which I think is kind of fun. Um, but one of the things I wanted to mention, too, is that with the change in museums, um, there have been a revitalization of cultural cultures um, and native cultures in the U.S., particularly, this is something we see in the West a lot anyway, is um, not just involvement in existing museums, but tribes creating their own cultural centers, which are kind of like, I think of it as like a backwards museum, in, or not backwards, but inside out, because it's very much like the collections are here to learn from and for the tribe to um, have... The, the artifacts play a role in their culture rather than keeping in storage and totally behind glass. I mean, they, they can be, but um, the, the knowledge that the artifacts can bring into the culture and also the knowledge that the culture has about the artifacts that may or may not be able to be shared with the public or just that maybe isn't known because the museum didn't ask. I know one example is that that I always find kind of funny is that, um, so there's a, a museum I worked for a while back that had a bunch of baskets on display and they were all in a shape of a bowl, right? You know, and a tribal member came through and was like, I'm sorry, I just want to let you guys know that these three or four baskets, yeah, those are hats. <laughs> <laughs> you have them displayed upside down so oh dear. just to let you know um, <laughs> so there's an important role that I think the conversation and the interaction in place of, of communities is definitely necessary um, but researchers I think are often intimidated um, because you know as scientists we're often socially awkward um, <laughs> by talking to people um, but there were a couple of other um, examples you guys had I think well I think there are a lot of wonderful examples from small scale to large scale you have things like there are living history museums that are highly involved with the um, indigenous communities in that area to the um, American Indian Museum uh, the Smithsonian in DC where it was created this building structure to the collections to everything and how um, it was it was widely involved with a variety of indigenous communities. Um, but I believe, uh, Nicole, you wanted to make a distinction between the idea of a museum and that of a uh, like a heritage center. Yeah. So um, one of the things that uh, I remembered as you were talking about museums and, and how and versus the, the center that you mentioned was that um, so, some museums have even opted to um, rename themselves as centers uh, to get away from that uh, uh, mute, the, the old uh, thought regarding museums uh, that they're inaccessible, they're not, you know, only a couple people get to tell you what the narrative are. And whereas the center is a little bit more geared toward the community and toward being an anchor of a community where 
where cultural events can happen and where um, it could be a forum. It could be a, a center where uh, new events and new ideas are, are created. So it, it becomes less of a stale glass house where stuff is held and more of an active um, environment that everyone can participate in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. And that definitely moves, um, I think, as Sarah was complaining about, sorry, I mean, um, it, it, enlightening us about the soapboxing, um, <laughs> daycare, the soapboxing about the daycare <laughs> center feel of <laughs> some of these It is a daycare center feel. <laughs> There's definitely some of that, too. Mm-hmm. There, there but, is. I feel like but, people just want to go and drop their kids off and be like, why can't you entertain my children and then leave? And yeah. I mean, they think their kids I, are just going to learn. I think to be fair, though, I think there's less and less places uh, in today's uh, that parents feel comfortable taking their kids to and being able to just temporarily turn off that switch of of uh, constantly chasing after the kids, like um, the the Milwaukee Public Museum, for instance, sometimes doesn't. Uh, well, uh, it's it's a safe zone where I've seen parents be very comfortable with their kids just running ahead. They're like in the middle of the next exhibit. The parents, you know, don't even see them, but they're totally fine because there's museum staff that are trained in Code Adam and um, to, to you know to find the kids and. Uh, did you say Code Adam? Oh, Code Adam is yeah. Um, yeah. it's from it's from uh, Walmart and uh, Joe Walsh. Oh, it's it's for when you have a missing child and you're in a public oh, space. Oh, I see. Okay. Series of steps you go through to help locate and reunite the kids. Okay. Yeah, yeah and, and and also prevent them from being removed from the premises. Yeah. Mm-hmm. by someone who should not be removing them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, and, and you know they have. Uh, I've been taught very strict protocols when a code atom is, is called personally. So, well, I definitely agree that uh, museum exhibits shouldn't be dumbed down. Or, uh, I I also think that there's a lot of room for uh, museums to continue catering. Or, uh, like for instance, the Field Museum, I believe, has a uh, a whole almost a center at the the bottom of it where where young kids can um, uh, be with some caretakers and <laughs> yeah I haven't personally seen it but I really wanted to drop my niece and nephew off there once <laughs> but I, I that's but a, that's a good I, point especially I mean we definitely want to have museums that are kid friendly enough but yeah you don't want to go too far in one direction and not too far in another direction you wanted a happy medium and um, just a, as a an example that I personally find it runs a good gamut in terms of not only um, promoting social justice, uh, providing issues on the past, showing issues in the present, what can we do in the future, has the adult exhibits, the kids exhibits is the Holocaust Museum in D.C., where it shows a continuing issues, but also highlighting this horrific event. And they have an amazing children's wing that takes kids through what actually happened without, you know, hopefully not completely scarring them for the rest of their lives. But I went through that that as a kid and it stuck with me, but in a good way, you know, rather than being like, oh, I'm scarred for life. Um, But, and I'm sure there are many examples. Exactly. 
Yeah. Not yeah. dumbing and it down, but making it accessible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and it's good to have both, I think. Um, you know, stuff that's geared more towards everyone or towards adults. And then is it stuff that is in that very scattered, very kid-friendly way, because there are some that just have a hard time engaging. And I think um, places like that are important for kids that just aren't interested, because those tend to be science and technology museums. They're rarely history museums. Um, And so that's where you get, you know, finding a way to engage a certain population. Um, I, you know, kids that can't sit still for 10 seconds um which most kids you know not all kids but there there's a (laughs) a healthy handful out there and it's good to find ways to engage them and i think that is one way um you know they have the so many studies um about the importance of of not just hands-on um i think the dumbing down issue is a problem um and but the it's hard to address, um, especially with, um, and there is, I think some attention or there has been some attention within the professional professionalization of museums and that that's being improved upon, but just like all other kinds of museums, some are better than others. Some do it better than others. Some think, well, in order to make this kin friendly, all we have to do is dumb it down. Um, and that's not cool at all. So that's definitely something that can be improved upon for sure. How much of that do you think is a funding issue? Like they can't. Most of it. Uh, <laughs> I do think there's a chronic lack of funding. And I think that drives people to, or drives the museums to try to do things that they don't have the budget for. And so they end up cutting corners and trying to cut costs. And then you get lackluster results. Yeah. I, you know, else. Yeah, and I mean, I don't want to hold people accountable for things outside of their ability, but if you're running into that kind of a situation, maybe you should evaluate, reevaluate even doing the project in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe those funds yeah. can be used, better used somewhere else as opposed to trying to create a kid-friendly interactive program that is going to fall flat because you just don't have the money to do it. And some of that is finding either really good grant writers or people who can really schmooze right. those patrons um, to get enough funding to hire a professional educator that can design this the way that the museum has vision for um, is really kind of what it comes down to. Not everyone has the ability to do that, obviously, but that's where it's kind of like, you know, those are those are some some key uh, elements in creating really great museums, I think. And I I think those areas are expanding and I hope to see that improving upon mm-hmm. there uh, what statistics I w- had seen when I looked before this show um, were a few years old um, but it did appear that you know you have museums and uh, historic sites as some of the largest um, entertainment Uh, physical entertainment that people do in the States um, and actually uh, combined outran population for people who attended theme parks, which I found was kind of surprising. Awesome. I imagine museum admissions are probably cheaper than theme parks too. So there's a bit of an economics and then a tourism and a social learning. Yeah. Yeah. True. So much cheaper. Well, (laughs) on that note, 
it is time for closing thoughts. Um, I know we could talk on for hours about museums. I know I definitely could. There's so many topics to go into about museums. But for this final 10 minutes, ladies, do you have any final thoughts? Cheryl, would you like to start? Well, I guess, like anything, just keep present. You know, we're you have to remember what the audience is and what the intent is in terms of what you want to use the collections for, exhibit, display, research, education. And so a good professional should balance out you know, and match those needs up. And you could do more replication with educational collections or, or unprovenience, but for research, you really need the real deal. Mm-hmm. So some sense, the debate that I mentioned is artificial, but... In some sense, it's just people wanting to use the same collection for multiple purposes. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a very good point. Anybody else for final thoughts? Um, well, I've, I've recently seen where multiple avenues of research have shown that amongst adults, millennials are by far the biggest users of libraries and even are using libraries to a greater degree than uh, the generation before them at the same age. Hmm, that's and surprising. As, as, I think as, that's as the, awesome. As the oldest millennial, I <laughs> right? take pride in this. Um, I'm with you. <laughs> and I'm hoping that this is a trend. Uh, you know, museums often get lumped into the same categories as, as libraries as far as, you know, what they're for how to fund them and stuff like that. And so I hope that this is a trend that people are ready to uh, learn. People are, you know, reverse the trend. And we want to learn. We want to take possession of the past as a community, you know, not as a place of privilege. And so I have hope yes. for museums. Excellent. Oh, and I wanted to to jump in we um, mentioned NMAI the uh, oh I can't remember the acronym for the life of me ever um, the Smithsonian uh, National Museum of the American Indian yes I got it that time um, good job so we mentioned that one but also the very recently um completed which i'm very excited about seeing in dc next year yes is the um what is it? it's the 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 name National uh, Museum of African American Culture oh and History. Oh my God! I you thank that you like three times. I'm like it's a long it one. Is I can't so remember cool. that. One. I got okay. I got to go one of the in one of the early opening weeks because I have oh. friends who are amazing, and I am not kidding you. It is probably one of the coolest museums I have been to in a really long time. And I've done pretty much every museum in the Smithsonian. Mm-hmm. It's just cool. And the building is freaking gorgeous. Like it is just a beautiful building. So if nothing else, go see the building and stay for the exhibits because it's, it's a stunning museum. It's, there's just a lot there. They did a really good job of making things interactive, a really good job of making things, um, explaining things in a way that like you can walk through a display and understand what's going on and you feel educated when you leave. It's not boring. It's beautiful. And I, I really think it's a model that a lot of museums should attempt to follow from here on out. Um, I read Excellent. about that one that it has, uh, they followed some of the things they did with the American Indian Museum, which 
at that another time, really good museum. Oh my gosh, uh, yeah, had the highest uh, display lag time uh, measured mm-hmm. in any museum in the Americas. But the African American Museum lag time that's been measured like per display is phenomenal. Even blew that one out of the water. Hmm. Yeah, it, there's just, it's the, the way that the information is presented and everything. People just linger. Wow. You're going to be there. Go early because you are literally going to be there all day. It's, <laughs> and it's not even one of the bigger museums. It's it's actually, I think, one of the mediums, almost smaller sized museums. You will be there all day. There's just that much information to to do it. And, and pro tip, when you go, just go all the way up to the top floor and work your way down to the basement. Don't start at the basement and go up. Awesome. So... I think this has been a really great conversation and I think it's a really great jumping point for all of the topics that we talked about because I think they could each be, so many things could each be their own episode. Um, In our last episode that we did for the monuments, um, some of the similar things came up and I wanted to do a quick shout out actually. Um, I don't know if you guys have anything off the top of your head that you would recommend that we haven't mentioned yet, um, being the Whitney Plantation in um, Louisiana. And um, the, oh, I can't remember the rest of it. Um, uh, what, does anyone else have anything else um, that you would suggest? Uh, there's one that's under the works. You can only go there uh, by a group appointment right now. But the Levi Jordan Plantation is another one of those where much of the enslaved person's quarters uh, and their cultural remains are behind. And the entire purpose um, of this historic uh, site interpretation is for the enslaved person's experience. And they've, uh, you know, gathered up survivors stories, descendant stories. Um, nice. And it's, you know, funding and historic sites go yeah, uh, um, I, I've had the great fortune of working uh, on it, uh, field work, um, and so it's going to be an up and coming one uh, there, uh, southwest of Houston. Cool, very very cool. Marine, uh, Nicole, final thoughts. Well, I just looked it up, and the National Museum of African American History and Culture is still free, and uh, but the passes are timed and I, I don't know about you but I because the SAAs are going to be in DC <laughs> next year I am going to integrate that into my exactly into I'm my totally going to be there you might I want to buy your tickets early all of the archaeologists a few days early yeah we'll all so, have to go together early <laughs> excellent so that's a lot of wonderful suggestions a lot of wonderful examples of different museums trying to incorporate many different viewpoints, trying to do different types of interaction. I think we had a good conversation. Um, And we always need to remember to, to also visit our local museums and Hey, the best thing you can do is be a volunteer. If you want to change something, volunteer at a museum and getting involved is a wonderful thing to do. Ladies, thank you so much for joining in this conversation on this discussion this evening. Really appreciate you being here. 
Uh, for our listeners, um, we will provide links to some of the different museums and articles that we discussed. If you are interested, check us out on Twitter at women um, at women archies. So the the uh, Women in Archaeology podcast. And then we also have a blog and we would love to hear from you. Our email is, and I'm afraid I can't remember off the top of my head. Sarah, do you know it? <laughs> <laughs> Our email is women in Archaeology. Uh, shoot, man, you messed me up. It's a Jeez, Gmail. <laughs> I'm just what it is. Uh, it's, it's women in archaeology at gmail.com. Thank you very much. And please visit our blog as well, which I believe is a women in archaeology um, at... Uh, dot blogspot. Yes, dot blogspot. Thank you very much. I should be able to remember this by honestly, now. Though, honestly, though, I Google this pretty frequently. If you just type in women in archaeology, uh, both the podcast and the blog will pop up in the first 10 searches. So oh, Excellent. Yep. We cool. Perfect. Wonderful. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, ladies, thank you so much for being here and hope to have another discussion with you again soon. All right. See you soon. Bye. 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 Bye.